Hello and welcome to Young Nostalgia, the podcast that takes a trip down memory lane from two guys that never lived it. I'm Nolan and beside me is Ben and thank you for joining us as we talk about our passion for the past while being young at heart. So we're continuing our love of the Rat Pack for October and today is the man, the myth, the legend, Frank Sinatra. If you like what you've been hearing, be sure to rate the show where you get all your podcasts and share the love. We're on iTunes, Google Play, as well as Stitcher, and leave any positive review, and it helps us grow. So today, it's all about how he did it his way. Ben, how you doing today, bud? I'm doing awesome. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Um, you were making me laugh earlier, so the intro got a little <laughs> shaky. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're going to jump right into all about Frank Sinatra, just an overview of who, who Frank was. Um, he's been really our lead influence in what Ben and I really love about the big band era, the swing era, and probably one of our most influential and favorite musicians of all time for Ben and I. Um, he was born in Hoboken, New Jersey on December 12, 1915. In the 1940s and the 50s, he had a dazzling array of hit songs and albums and went on to appear in dozens of films, uh, winning a supporting actor Oscar from here to eternity. He had a massive catalog of work that includes iconic tunes like Love and Marriage, Strangers in the Night, My Way, and New York, New York. Unfortunately, he passed away back in May 14th of 1998 at the age of 82 in Los Angeles, California. He ha- He's done everything from the Rat Pack, great musical hits, great uh, movies, as well as amazing philanthropic careers. And we're going to dive into just a little bit of that going into the way um, he did it his way. All right, bud, take it over. <clears throat> All right, we're going to back up a little bit here to his early life and the beginning of his career. He was born Francis Albert Sinatra um, in, once again, Hoboken, New Jersey, um, to a as the only child of Sicilian immigrants. Um, and the, the teenage Sinatra, uh, he, he his decision to become a singer um, was inspired after watching a Bing Crosby performance in the mid-1930s. Which is, I mean, Bing Crosby, we'll have to make a note of that. That'd be another great show topic idea. Yeah, he's had huge influence <laughs> oh. um, in this kind of style of music, especially in the beginning. Oh, yeah. Um, both for, like, film and musical scores as, scores as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he At an early age, he was a member of the Glee Club in his high school, um, and around the same time, he had uh, begun sunk... <laughs> began singing at local nightclubs. Um, And then shortly after this, uh, he had his first musical break um, when he was involved with a music group called the Hoboken Four in 1935. Um, And together they won the uh, very popular Major Bows and his original Amateur Hour radio contest. Um, And it was that... When I think about this, like, I always (laughs) think of... um, the voice or uh, <laughs> oh you know what God. i mean it's it's yeah. the radio show that you know some artists really get a breakthrough in and i think yeah. back then kind of gave them open the door into the big showbiz <laughs> world it's one of those things where you can compare it and then at the same time like you can't compare it <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure it was a lot cooler back then yeah huh? yeah yeah oh i agree <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and it was it was that radio exposure um that kind of got him involved with Harry James, um, the, the, the band leader, Harry James, um, that he later on, 
made his first recordings with, um, and one of those included uh, All or Nothing at All. Um, and that was really his first entrance into a musical um, career. I mean, he, it's not like his name was known yet or anything like that. Um, but this is where he first got into make actual recordings. Backing up or uh, moving on a little bit, we got we're in 1940 um, when Tommy Dorsey invited Sinatra to actually join his band, um, and this is where he had his first United States Billboard number one in 1940 um, with the song "I'll Never Smile Again," uh, which held the number one spot for 12 weeks, <laughs> which I mean, that seems pretty impressive for your first Billboard. Number one, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's a quarter of a year, like. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's that's a good amount of time, <laughs> um, especially with you know this style of music being so popular back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, for for a new up and comer coming in straight into Tommy Dorsey's big band. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like he was. US. It's not like he was there for a week just by the the nature of you know he's a, he's a new name and people are you know maybe. Uh, listening to it and, and, and buying the the, the uh, recordings, um, you know, just to, to try out this new artist. I mean, 12 weeks, that's a long time. I mean, that's, that at this point, you know, people are buying it because they love it, not just because it's it's new and it's, it's something different. Yeah, and I mean, I think just the energy that Sinatra brought to his style of music was also something very different too. Mm-hmm. Like you could feel the energy through the way he performed um, through his music, even through, you know, recordings and stuff. Right. So that probably helped out a lot as well. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and then he was with Dorsey's band uh, for two years at the top of the charts um, before Sinatra finally decided to go out on his own into a solo career. And that kind of segues us right into talking about his solo career. <laughs> um, and, you know, Sinatra kind of, gaining the momentum and the influence to be able to strike it out on his own in 1943 and 1946 Sinatra's solo career really blossomed as a singer as he charted a slew of hits when signed with Columbia Records starting out um and so this is when the kind of coined term of mobs of Bobby Soxer fans um, Sinatra Sinatra attracted with his dreamy baritone um, which earned him such nicknames as the voice and the sultan of swoon he was very much a smooth talker um, and it's always funny to see these pictures of Sinatra like on staircases or whatever (laughs) and just a whole bunch of women like young ladies all around him Um, and I was reading this article once that he was like kind of rushed by all of his fans and they actually kind of like hurt him because they like stole his famous bow tie that he'd always used to wear live oh really and he had like a scratch on his head and stuff like that yeah these people went crazy about him it's almost if you could think of the way the beatles were here in the u.s Mm -hmm. that's the kind of atmosphere that sinatra had around him when he was getting this big (laughs) can you believe it yeah it's not something that with with these types of guys and you know the the type of music and that sort of thing you know that's something that you that's something you expect to to see uh later on you know like british invasion kind of stuff you know well you like you said the beatles you know that's the the kind of reaction you expect there and you know just to think about it it's not not the kind of uh fan reception that you would expect with um you know earlier in time like this with someone like sinatra it doesn't surprise me you know at all sinatra being who he was (laughs) but um you know, it's just not something you think about right away. 
Yeah. And, you know, kind of kind of comparing to what the Beatles had, Sinatra had his own walk of coolness and style about him that the Beatles had. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How it was so different for the time. And they were young. They were good looking. Well, maybe not Ringo, but everyone else was pretty good. <laughs> 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 All right, we're getting off track. Um, and so one of the things that really kind of toyed hard with Sinatra was he was going really big in the in, in the war years of World War II. Um, but what actually ended up happening is that he was rendered unable, like un, unfit to serve mm-hmm. due to um, his punctured eardrum when he was being born. Um, and so a quote from Sinatra himself, it says, it was the war years and there was a great loneliness. Um, I was the boy in every corner drugstore who'd gone off or gotten away with it, undrafted to the war, and that was all. So people really kind of saw him um, sometimes as just the guy that got out, like the guy that's not risking everything for the country at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but a cool little side thing is that he would do his best to always give to the troops that he could. So he traveled to Europe to entertain the USO troops during World War II in 1945 with Phil Silvers. But earlier, the FBI actually prevented Frank from traveling on previous tours, which I'm not really sure why, but yeah, it's something that I'm not really about. sure either. I mean, I'm sure there was a reason, and, and who knows, it might have been something that came up from his past or something like that. I'm sure they're you know, national security and, you know, making sure they know exactly what's going on. But it just seems weird that there would be that much of a restriction on, you know, someone wanting to go, you know, boost morale and that sort of thing. You know, I mean, it is, it really is for the war effort. So you'd think you'd, you know, be really trying to do everything possible. And it's just weird that they wouldn't let him go until 1945. Yeah, I know. Insane. I read that too, but, um, all right, so Sinatra made his movie acting debut in 1943, kind of when he started his solo career. Um, it was with the films Reverly with Beverly and Higher and Higher, which Higher and Higher was highly acclaimed. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast, I guess. 1945, um, he won a Special Academy Award for The House I Live In, a 10-minute short made to promote racial and religious tolerance on the home front during the war. So that's actually really something we can sidetrack a little bit on, is that Sinatra's huge heart for understanding different cultures and kind of breaking the racial racial bounds that tore the american people yeah like yeah i mean just with you know the 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 uso stuff and all and, and you know and in, in addition to the the stuff he did at home on the home front just like this uh the house i live in um and that's something that he's doing as um as a celebrity but then you look uh at around this time and, a little, and later on just the the inclusion of uh Sammy Davis into you know the rap pack and you know that was pretty big too that was pretty big for the time and it's still you know regarded as um you know it, it's kind of looked at as the him as well as the other guys Dino and you know, all those other guys um how it was different for the time i mean there's a lot of places they would go to play who didn't necessarily support sammy davis being there um and you know those the the rat pack guys were like look it's all of us or none of us <laughs> yeah oh yeah and, definitely uh, and like and so frank would always what, be at the forefront of saying no to a venue or like yeah. cutting his contract because they wouldn't allow you know racial 
integration or Sammy to perform or something. He would be the first one to say, I'm getting my ass out of here. Nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I kind of got sidetracked a little bit on, on that, I guess. But what I was trying to say is you, you can see it in his celebrity life, but also in, you know, in his personal and friendship life as well. Yeah, yeah, very, <laughs> very true. I was trying to make that point and then somehow got distracted. <laughs> Happen, it happens pretty easy. It, it, it happens all the time. So um, Frank was actually invited to the White House, White House for the very first time in 1943 by Franklin um, D. Roosevelt. Frank was a great um, admirer of the president and kept the invitation framed in his house in New Jersey for the rest of his lifetime. Kind of just one of those interesting fact trivia tidbits. Yeah. I'm telling you, man. That's kind of something that you see uh, that we'll get to a little bit later on. He has um, fairly involved with uh, several presidents. Yeah, definitely. I mean, having such a big figurehead like Frank Sinatra um, we'll talk a little bit also about how he supported certain presidencies like that's a big name behind you mm-hmm. um, oh yeah so his popular his popularity began to slide in the post-war post-war years um, however leading to a loss of his recording and film contracts within the early 1950s but in 1953 he made a triumphant comeback, winning a supporting actor Oscar for his portrayal of the Ita- Italian-American soldier uh, Maggio in the classic um, From Here to Eternity. Um, he then signed the coveted contract with Capitol Records that same year in 1953, and this is where he'll spend most of his recording time um, with major hits. And then the Sinatra of the 1950s brought forth a more mature sound with a jazzier inflections in his voice. And this is the kind of Sinatra that I've, I've really grown attached to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of that mid-career um, style of music with Capitol. And so just to round it all up, when um, his record sales began to dip again by the end of the 1950s, Sinatra left Capitol to establish his own record label, Reprise. And I was doing a little bit of digging, and I found this really cool quote from his daughter, Nancy Sinatra. Um, she said, quote, he formed Reprise in a self-defense against the new technology that was becoming the Vogue, overdubbing multiple tracks, the stereality of studios, um, dominated by machines, not energized by live audiences. It was important for him, Frank Sinatra, to have control of his dates, to fight off technicians who wanted to overproduce, to maintain the life and spontaneity of his work. As owner of the label, he was here um, that Frank was actually given the first time, given the nickname, the chairman of the board. So I know that was kind of a lot thrown at you, but mm-hmm. um, Reprise was his own record label, and he pretty much did it to keep his style and passion of what he was doing the same rather than changing with so much technology added into the raw music of it. Yeah. Which is, which is makes it interesting because you know, you know, so we see so often in uh, any sort of you really, you know, to really stay afloat, you have to change with the times. And, you know, Frank Sinatra was the kind of guy that he formed an entire record label. So he didn't have to, and he, he still remained a big player. Yeah, I've never known of an audit of, of an artist, a musician that could stay so classic and pristine, but be able to live for like legend lives forever like that. I mean, people appreciate Frank Sinatra to this day. Obviously, we're talking about it, but the way he just preserved that style of music is something that is just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, like I. Yeah, and just the 
the the long lasting career that he had, you know, I mean that it doesn't happen all the time anyway. A lot, you know, there's a ton of artists who, you know, there for a couple years, maybe a decade, and they just kind of fall off the fall off the charts. They might not totally go away, but they're just not the big names anymore. And you know, Frank Sinatra's one of the few guys that, I mean, could really just you know he's hammering out um, hits all the time. You know, even in lulls in popularity, you know, he's still a uh, a really well known name in the industry. Definitely. All right, so we're going to move on here a little bit to the 1960s, and we had talked about the dip a little bit in the 50s. Um, towards the end of the 50s and in the 60s, uh, we really saw a comeback for Sinatra. And it was at this time that he uh, first debuted in Las Vegas, um, where he was he continued for years as a main attraction at the Sands, as well as Caesar's Palace, um, which is kind of a huge uh, turning point in his career. It's something that he hasn't done before. Um, and and he, moving to such a... Uh, entertainment-based atmosphere um, really did wonders for his career. Yeah, he kind of started embodying this whole bachelor image um, that we see a lot <laughs> with, like, Dino and stuff, you know, whiskey yeah. in hand. Um, and I was actually reading an article, too, about how Frank Sinatra's fam- famous like, um, and most liked alcohol was Jack Daniels and really... Frank Sinatra was the one to really push Jack Daniels into such popularity as well because that was his choice of drink all the time. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's pretty interesting. I did not know that that was his drink of choice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and kind of going on what we talked about before, uh, you know, always staying the same and still being popular. Um, he always, e- even though he, he didn't change that much, he always had a modern edge and uh, he, he always retained his timeless class. Um, and even the, the changing youth of the day um, still had a respect for Sinatra. And they showed that respect to, to him. And uh, just as an example here, Jim Morrison um, of The Doors once said that uh, no one can touch him. You know, just Unless saying he that. allowed you to. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and that just kind of shows, I mean, that's a quote from a, a, a huge uh, personality from, you know, it's a, a very popular band. Um, and it was totally different than, you know, any, the totally different world than Frank Sinatra's, but still talking about um, the respect that he has shown in the industry. So Sinatra's uh, had a big hit in 1961, and it made a uh, Billboard number one track with Strangers in the Night which he ended up winning a Grammy for Record of the Year. Um, I love that song so much. Oh, I know. I it's you know I have to say it, it might be a little bit cliche because it's a super popular one, but that's probably one of my favorites from Frank Sinatra. I yeah, I totally agree that, and and I believe My Way is one of my faves as well. But I mean, yeah, really, uh, really any one of them are amazing. But Strangers of the Night, like if you. Strangers in the Night, you hear that, and then especially at the very end, I can't stop singing it because <laughs> he always like he does that humming or like do 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 do. You know what I mean? It's like the entire day I do that same thing. Yeah, that seems like one of those parts of the song when you're singing along to yourself and you can't remember what the next words are supposed to be. You just kind of <laughs> break into that, and it just sounds like you know what you're doing. 
Yeah, exactly. Okay, so at this time, he also recorded a duet um, it's called Something Stupid with his daughter Nancy, um, and who had also uh, just previously made waves with the feminist anthem, uh, these moots, the, these moots, the, <laughs> these boots are made for walking, which is, uh, which that, I mean, I, I like that song. I'm not a huge, uh, Nancy Sinatra fan, but that, that's a catchy song. Yeah, um, it is. and from that, uh, duet, they both reached, uh, they were number one on the charts for four weeks, um, in spring of 1967. I just think it's like so insane on how much the Sinatra name just holds up on the charts. Like, it doesn't matter where he was in his career. He had at least multiple songs a decade that held the charts for a considerable amount of time. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it's just amazing. You know, I don't want to say it's not, you know, all of his last name because he was, you know, really talented um, and he was always putting out great music. But a, a little bit almost had to be at at some points, you know. I mean, you know, maybe it's not what it got to the charts, but I'm sure that's what kept it in the charts so long is just having the Sinatra name on it. Everyone knew it, and everyone knew it was great. Yeah. So moving on a little bit, um, towards the end of the decade, um, Sinatra had added another signature song to his collection, uh, which was My Way, Um which had been adapted from a popular French tune, um, and except it had new lyrics, which were written by Paul Anka. Um, I love that song. Like, yes, that, that's when, another. When good I one. when I turn, you know, when I turn seventy-five, I just want to belt this song because I knew I did all I could in life, and I'm pretty happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah. They, oh, it's like my motto. I love that song. <laughs> I'd like to hear the French tune that it was uh, kind of modeled that, after. That adapted it, yeah. Yeah, I can't say I've ever heard that before. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, kind of skipping forward a little bit to the 70s, uh, Sinatra had a brief retirement. It wasn't really retirement. It was more of a break um, before he returned to the uh, to the entertainment scene uh, with a new album, Old uh, called Old Blue Eyes is Back in 1973. Um, and it was also around this time that he started to become a lot more politically active. He's always kind of, you know, supported and, you know, palled around with politicians. And, well, we talked about FDR um, before, but this is where he really um, started to get more uh, actually active. So Sinatra kind of started off, he worked uh, eagerly for John F. Kennedy's election in 1960, um, and supervised JFK's inaugural gala in Washington, and that was kind of, that was before he started to get politically active in the 70s, granted, but this kind of started, uh, started a relationship that was continued, um, continued with time, and then late, uh, later on, uh, after this, the relationship between the two soured, um, because the president was forced to cancel a weekend trip to Sinatra's house um, due to the singer's connection with a crime boss in Chicago named Sam uh, Giancana. 
<laughs> I'm sure I butchered that. <laughs> no, sure. that actually sounds pretty right. <laughs> and another thing to add on to that, I know we've talked about it in the in the past, but um, JFK's adversity to Sammy Davis, where um, Sinatra would have like would want Sammy to come with him or entertain JFK and his wife um, with Sammy in the in the in the household as well, and they would they would say we just don't want Sammy there, you know, the right. racial lines again. Mm-hmm. And Sinatra just was like, that turned him off right away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that that was, you know, if if they were good enough friends, you know, to potentially turn down, you know, uh, gigs in whether it's clubs or shows or anything like that, you know, because they wouldn't want Sammy Davis there. I'm sure that that did not help um, keep a lasting relationship with JFK. Yeah. So we step back a little bit and we'll step back forward into the 70s. Um, he actually... Uh, decided to leave his long-held Democratic loyalties and started really moving towards the Republican Party um, by supporting uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, (laughs) Okay, well, we've we've talked about Richard Nixon before. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, he supported Nixon, and then later on he was uh, a fairly close friend um, with Ronald Reagan, and then, which who later on, um, which I found this really interesting, and I remember hearing it before, but it kind of uh, I remembered it doing show prep a couple of days ago. Um, Reagan later on presented Sinatra with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, um, which is of course the nation's highest civilian award, and this was in 1985, which is amazing. I mean, we'll we'll dive a little bit into what all Sinatra did just for the world um, and just for people in general. Uh, but I think that really helped solidify just his legend of who he was because he was more than just a performer. He was a philanthropist um, and just an all-out advocate for the well-being of humanity. Right. And, you know, as someone with so much stuff under his belt, like Sinatra, you know, there's always room for something like the Medal of Freedom. You know, I mean, that's that can boost anyone's resume. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just add that on. <laughs> yeah, especially being presented to it by Ronald Reagan. You know, I mean, that's got to be just amazing right there. I mean, that's oh, yeah. Ronaldus Magnus himself giving you the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Man, <laughs> breathtaking. <laughs> it is. All right, into, <clears throat> excuse me, in, into um, Sinatra's personal life a little bit. We'll just kind of skim through it. Um, he was married four times. In all, uh, first married his childhood sweetheart Nancy Barbado in 1939. They had three children, Nancy, Frank Sinatra Jr., and Tina. And and then they um, unfortunately divorced in the late 1940s. 1951, Sinatra uh, married actress Ava Gardner. After they split, Sinatra remarried a third time to Mia uh, Farrow in 1966. So that union, too, ended in divorce in 1968, and Sinatra finally um, uh, um, married his fourth and final time in 1976 to Barbara Blakely Marks, the ex-wife of comedian Zeppo Marks. Um, and then in October 2013, Farrow, um made headlines after stating in an interview with Vanity Fair that Sinatra could be the father of her 25-year-old son, Ronan, who is Faroe's only official biological child with director Woody Allen. And so I've read up a little bit on this, and um, Faroe 
uh, Mia Farrow and Sinatra actually had an ongoing off and on again uh, like relationship between all of their marriages and anything like that. It was on again and off again a lot. Huh. That's something I've never heard before. Mm-hmm. And the whole... <laughs> <laughs> the whole could be the father of her 25-year-old son. <laughs> I don't know. Like, Oh, boy. The whole, the the celebrity, it seems like the celebrity relationship marriage thing seems so sketchy anyway sometimes. And, you know, something like this just kind of reinforces that. Like, you know, you talked about being on again, off again. And, you know, it's just it's something like that, you know, it's it's just kind of it's kind of icing on the cake for that whole you know the 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 celebrity lifestyle kind of thing. <laughs> I know. I mean, I always <laughs> which think I thought was like, pretty how funny. How much? How many people do they come in contact that are either you know famous or well known that just come in contact with each other all the time? It's hard not to oh, be yeah. able to you know. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> all right. So we're going to. Start moving into uh, Frank Sinatra's death as well as his legacy. In 1987, uh, the author Kit Kelly um, it, uh, wrote an unauthorized biography of Frank Sinatra um, where she accused the singer of basically building his career on mob ties. Um, and, you know, this... It, it was some bad, a little bit of bad press, but it did absolutely nothing to Sinatra's popularity. You know, that baby's and, a steel curtain. Ain't nothing gonna touch that. <laughs> I no kidding. Um, and it, it's not really surprising because you know, if you like Sinatra, you know why you like Sinatra. You know, like it. I don't really see how that's. You know, it, his career is so long and he has so many hits and that sort of thing. It's not like someone rode to the top all at once. Someone came out with, you know, a publication like this and tore him right back down. I mean, he's been so, uh, he's been on top for so long. Like, what are you going to do, you know? Nothing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, later on in 1993, at the age of 77, um, there was kind of a resurgence of new, younger fans um, when he released... Uh, duets, which was a collection of 13 original uh, Sinatra. There's his, you know, his standard songs, um, but they're re-recorded, and they featured um, other artists like Barbara Streisand, Bono, Tony Bennett, um, Aretha Franklin, um, and it was a pretty big hit. Uh, but even though it was a hit, there was still some pushback from critics, which is kind of interesting. Um, they really attacked uh, the quality of the project um, because Sinatra supposedly had recorded his vocals very, very uh, well before the collaborators on the project were able to lay down their tracks. So it's kind of what the, the critics were kind of talking about how he just recorded his parts to the songs and and kind of just threw it out there for someone else to to back it up with their own tracks and that sort of thing. And I don't, you know, I don't really know it, it, 100% if that's true or not. There's so many, you know, logistics involved with doing that sort of thing that, you know, you never really know. Critics are always going to find something to try to capitalize on. Uh-huh. Um, but, 
you know, regardless of that, it was still a hit. You know, everyone is always eager for, you know, some new Sinatra. Um, so after that, in 1995, uh, Sinatra uh, performed at his last concert. Um, this was at the Palm Desert Marriott Ballroom in California. Um, and this was just three years before uh, Frank Sinatra died of a heart attack in Los Angeles. Um, he died on May 14th, 1998, at 82 years old. There was a, uh, a huge number of tributes that just kind of flooded the music scene um, after, after his death. Um, with the, uh, the Capitol Records Tower in L.A., it just totally flooded. Um, and, you know, of course, that's where he recorded most of his albums, um, it was actually draped in black bunting, and the lights of Las Vegas Strip were dimmed, um, as well as the New York New York's Empire State Building was bathed in blue light for old blue eyes, which is pretty interesting because, I mean, this is kind of a countrywide morning. I mean, we have, uh, you know, L.A. and California, New York, um, Las Vegas. I mean, it, everywhere there was a, a big... Uh, media or uh, entertainment scene is really, um, there was a huge mourning for the passing of Frank Sinatra. Um, oh yeah. I mean, he had a big foothold in places like LA, Vegas, and New York. I mean, Sinatra just touched so many people because he was the voice of just a generation of music, multiple generations, really. Oh yeah. Multiple, multiple. I mean, this was, this was in 1998. You know, and just three years previous, he had he had gone on a. Uh, I mean, he had he had, was still playing concerts. Uh huh. Yep. Um, and then, actually, the late eighties. I think it was nineteen eighty eight. Was actually the last tour he did with the Rat Pack members, Dino and Sammy. Um, oh and yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, f- I forgot that there was a a tour with the actual Rat Pack that late. Um. All right. Um. In two thousand ten. Uh, there was a very well-received biography called uh, Frank, The Voice. Um, it was published by Doubleday. <laughs> published by Doubleday, um, and it was written by James Kaplan. Um, and then later on in 2015, there was a sequel um, to the original biography called Sinatra, The Chairman, um, which came out uh, just in time to mark the music, the musician's uh, 100th birthday, and that's yeah. I mean, I have not well, had a chance to look at either of those, and that's a shame. I'm gonna have to uh, get on that because I think I would like to, I would like to read those. Oh, most definitely. I would love to have a chance to read those through. Um, yeah, definitely. Okay, so just to round out the show, we have some um, interesting stories as well as the bigger picture of who Sinatra was. Um, So I was reading an article and some posts about this as well. So actually this month, back in 1977, it was the MOB. um, It kind of revolved around the MOB playoff games. And so Tommy Lasorda was actually a third baseman for the L.A. Dodgers who was Frank Sinatra's favorite baseball team. And that's kind of how they crossed paths, Sinatra and Lasorda. Um, they kind of touched paths in um, backstage, well, like 
behind the scenes it was like a cocktail hour or something mm-hmm. and they really hit it off and Sinatra like just really was drawn to him and they both kind of had an Italian background um, their parents were like Italian immigrants and all that and so Sinatra told Tommy Lasorda that when he becomes general manager he's going to come and perform the national anthem so the day the day of that Tommy Lasorda got offered the general manager position for the LA Dodgers Sinatra called him up and said I told you I'm going to sing for you I'm ready. And on the <laughs> opening day, the opening game for the Dodgers, Sinatra came out and sang and also did a charitable event as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Sinatra had such a big heart like for everyone, like people who were just really close and who Sinatra had a big connection with. Sinatra is one of the most reliable guys I, f- I feel like I've ever read about. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way that he put his neck out for you and made sure that you felt at home in his company. Um, so some things for his philanthropy, he launched a world tour to support um, in support of children's charities in 1962. And on top of that, he paid for all of the expenses, travel um, things for venues. Like it was just entirely beneficial for children's charities across the nation. Absolutely insane. Um, he played a historic benefit show for Dr. Martin Luther King at New York's Carnegie Hall in 1961. And one of the biggest ones he's ever done, he visited Egypt for the first time in 1979 and performed an, o- an open-air concert in front of the Sphinx and Great Pyramid of Giza on an invitation from President Anwar Sadat and the First Lady Jehan Sadat. And he raised over $800,000, and it benefited children in orphanage, orphanages in Egypt. Um, and then later, Sinatra stated it was his biggest stage he's ever performed on. Wow, like $800,000. Yeah, for children's orphanages and stuff in, in Egypt. I mean, over his yeah. lifetime, he's raised, he's raised multiple million dollars worth of charitable giving. I mean, that's... I'm just kind of stuck on the $800,000 just from that one performance or that one, uh, the one event. Um, you know, $800,000 is a lot for right now. Yeah. He, you know, let he alone killed it. Uh, 1979. I mean, I, I don't know what the exact, you know, change rate is, but that is a lot of money. Yep. Most definitely. Dang. All right. So that wraps up our show for, um, the big, the man, the legend, the voice, the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra, here on Young Nostalgia. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow us and like us. Um, you can follow us on Google Play, iTunes, as well as Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on our Podbean page, youngnostalgia.podbean.com. You'll see our banners for our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Give us a like. Give us a shout out. If you'd like to be a guest or have a special topic you'd like you'd like us to go over on a future show, give us a shout out and email at youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. I'm Nolan. On behalf of Ben, thanks for joining us. It's been a blast. And as we always say on Young Nostalgia, keep the bottles empty and the ashtrays full. Take care, everybody. <laughs>